With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. debunking the Senate parliamentarian excuse, which is coming um, coming our way any minute now. Any minute now on this uh, reconciliation package, we're going to get hit with a, well, I mean, we want to, but the Senate parliamentarian won't let us. So prepare yourself for that. It's going to be super annoying. The media is going to be incredibly dishonest in their discussions on this. Um so I'm letting you know in advance, in advance, this is not, you know, uh, after the fact. So everybody get ready for that. Uh, then I'm going to talk about the White House directing censorship of social media. Seems like something that shouldn't be happening, if you ask me. Um, I also have, oh, the John Bolton story is interesting because John Bolton is a warmongering maniac, and a CNN host absolutely schooled him without even trying. So we'll talk about that. We have uh, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis um, being a complete prick and hypocrite. 
So I will be making fun of him. Hopefully this knocks him down a couple points in the 2024 race, but you never know. Um, this is not something that seems to have caught on that much, but it's pretty glaring hypocrisy that uh, is totally relevant and interesting in my opinion. Uh, and then later on in the show, the extreme flooding that we're currently seeing going on in Germany and Belgium. We'll talk about that. I have a little news clip on that for you. I have uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez showing some life, some, uh, some fight. Break that down. McConnell made the show. The Frito-Lay workers are back in the show. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner yet again is in the show. Legalized weed, so a lot of stuff. Also got a really substantive uh, minimum wage story. So, all right, y'all, stay right there. Let's, uh, let's jump into it and get started. And uh, we're going to do that with, like I said, the we can't do it excuse on its way any minute now on the reconciliation package. Here we go. So we have a bipartisan infrastructure deal that's ready. We have a uh, reconciliation partisan deal on human infrastructure that's ready to go. The partisan one is $3.5 trillion. The, um, you know, provisions are, or a bunch of the provisions are now public. But naturally, you already have um, Joe Manchin balking a little bit, and you have, I'm sure, some of the other conservative Democrats are behind the scenes saying, we don't want this thing in there, we don't want that thing in there. Uh, For argument's sake, though, let's say, a deal eventually is ironed out. So maybe it's not $3.5 trillion, maybe it's $2 trillion, and um, maybe it still has some really good provisions in it like universal pre-K or child care or whatever. Um, so for argument's sake, let's say we have the votes necessary to pass the partisan reconciliation bill. Um, one of the things that the Democrats did previously that they're definitely going to do again, hear me now, quote me later, is they're going to say, well, we wanted to do X, Y, and Z, and we put it in the bill, so you guys can't get mad at us if you're, you know, part of our base voters. But the Senate parliamentarian has made a ruling and declared we're not allowed to put X, Y, or Z in this partisan reconciliation bill. The Senate parliamentarian excuse might be trotted out right now when the the bill that came out of committee is $3.5 trillion. Or they might bring out the Senate parliamentarian excuse when they negotiate that bill further and it's like $2 trillion or $1.5 trillion. But at some point, this Senate parliamentarian excuse is coming. And Politico actually sort of let everybody in on the game and on the trick here by accident in uh, a recent portion of an article on this. So let me show you that. The most glaring obstacle here is the Senate rule book to pass muster the immigration reforms. So they want to put immigration in that bill, immigration reform in the partisan reconciliation bill. Immigration reforms have to significantly impact the federal budget by generating revenue or deepening the deficit rather than merely being a side effect. Even raising the minimum wage failed to make the cut under that criterion earlier this year. CNN quotes former Senate parliamentarian Alan Fruman, who isn't buying it, quote, I understand arguments are made 
that there are budgetary effects when you change immigration law, but I think there's probably a strong argument that those effects are secondary. Democrats' purpose is immigration policy. Democrats seem to think they win either way. Worst, most likely case, the parliamentarian rebuffs them. But at least they can tell the base they tried. The stuff they're planning to include polls well, but Republicans are prepared to pounce if they do. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, who's been involved in bipartisan immigration talks in the past, warned that Democrats will have to own it if they go down this road on hot-button issues, presumably meaning in the 2022 midterms. So, they just admitted that they're scamming you. The scam is, look at all these amazing things we put in our reconciliation bill. We swear we're in favor of every single one of these things, and we're going to fight for it. But ah, the Senate parliamentarian twisted our arm and said, we can't put in immigration reform, for example, or we can't put in climate change provisions, for example. So they're effectively, I need you to stop and think about this. They're effectively giving the Senate parliamentarian a line item veto on their bill. A line item veto is something that's so powerful the president doesn't even have the ability to do a line-item veto on a bill. If a bill makes it to the president's desk, the president can't say, I'm vetoing, you know, four of the 80 provisions or whatever. And there have been presidents in the past who argued they want that ability. They want a line-item veto, and they do not have a line-item veto. But what we're talking about here is giving the Senate parliamentarian a line item veto. Now, let me explain to you why that's absolutely absurd. The Senate parliamentarian is just an advisory staffer. The Democrats make it seem like they're basically an emperor who gets the last say on all legislation. They make it seem like they have real power and can override the elected officials that we picked. They absolutely do not have that power. In fact, all they're really supposed to do in their advisory role is tell people, hey, here's what the precedent is. So here's what's happened previously on such questions. That's all they're supposed to do. And you know what? The Senate parliamentarian, if you don't like what they're saying, you can, Kamala can override them. She's in the position to override the Senate parliamentarian. Or they could fire the Senate parliamentarian and bring in a new Senate parliamentarian. Or they could create new rules to change the way reconciliation packages are done to allow specific things. So, for example, they're now discussing uh, with H.R. 1, voting rights reform, they're discussing, hey, let's do a carve-out to allow um, anything involving voting rights to pass with a simple majority. Now, how many votes are needed in order to change the rules so that it's only 51 votes to get voting rights reform passed? All you need is 51 votes. So a simple majority can give you the ability to change the rules to make it so simple majorities pass whatever kind of legislation you want. See, this is what I'm trying to explain to you guys. The media is incredibly misleading with how they're talking about all of this stuff. They don't tell you that Democrats have the ability 
to do what they want. They have the majority in the House, they have the majority in the Senate, and they have the presidency. And there's been countless examples of the rules being changed to, to go around, circumvent the filibuster. There are, get this, 161 exceptions to the filibuster. Now, how did we get those? We got those by the majority party changing the rules. So, for example, fast-tracking of votes on trade negotiations. That's one of the things that they said, you can do that with 51 votes. Uh, Expediting votes on military-based closures. That's another one. They just changed the rules and said, you could do that with a simple majority. I mean... Overturning the Congressional Review Act. So um, federal regulations that are being overturned by Congress, it doesn't require 60 votes. It only requires 51 votes. So if the federal government, you know, executive agencies are implementing some regulations that uh, the Senate doesn't like, all you need is 51 votes to say, don't implement that regulation. And this didn't used to be the case, but they changed the rules to make it the case. The filibuster was reformed in 1996, 2011, 2013, 2017, 2019. It was reformed recently on Supreme Court judges. So now it's just a simple majority to get somebody on the Supreme Court, when previously you had to go through regular order, and it was 60. But McConnell changed the rule and said, nah, now it's 51. So this idea where people scream and bitch and moan, but I'll spend the tradition of filibuster. You cannot override something so deeply part of our democracy. It is literally undemocratic. Regardless of what your personal opinion is on the filibuster, it is small d democratic. That's what it is. Or excuse me, small u, <laughs> undemocratic. It is undemocratic. It is not small d democratic. Because democratic would be simple majority wins. They've changed it a number of times. And by the way, the first time a filibuster was actually used was 1837. So not at the founding of our country. Again, there's 161 exceptions to the filibuster, 161. So here's what Democrats could do if they actually cared about getting all of these provisions into law. They could attack this in a number of different ways, guys. So right now, I think the, the, the rule is to use reconciliation, obviously, whatever you're passing with a simple majority needs to impact the budget. But you only get like two or three cracks at reconciliation for the whole year. That's it. So one of the things the Democrats could do is, oh, we changed the rules. Now we get 10 cracks at reconciliation per year, or we get four, or we get six, or whatever. All you need is 51 votes to say we're giving more chances at reconciliation per year. That's it. That's one thing they could do. Hey, we got more cracks of reconciliation. They can reform the filibuster back to the talking filibuster to make the opposition party have to talk. If you make it so that they actually have to physically filibuster, then they wouldn't be able to filibuster nearly as much as they can filibuster now, because the way it works is now all the Republicans have to do is say, we are declaring that we are filibustering. And that's it. And then they're filibustering, and then you need 60 votes to get through regular order. So you can reform the filibuster. You can change the reconciliation rules to make it so you have more cracks at reconciliation. You can make specific carve-outs on specific issues. Uh, so, yeah, for reconciliation, uh, it has to impact the budget or it has to be voting rights or immigration. Whatever. You can change the rules to whatever you want to change the rules to. So this fake hopelessness is what drives me crazy because it's dishonest on the part of the Democrats. 
it is completely dishonest. They know they can overrule the parliamentarian. They know they can fire the parliamentarian and get a new parliamentarian. They know the parliamentarian is just a staffer who gives an advisory opinion on what the precedent is. But they're pretending like they have more power so they can say, oh, it's not me. I was overruled by the emperor, the parliamentarian who's unelected. That is what drives me absolutely crazy. And the worst part of all of it is the media. The media is the worst part of all of it. Because the job of the media to tell you these things I just told you, to give you the facts, how they're not hopeless, they can do whatever they want. But they're not telling you that. Go read articles on the parliamentarian. You will see uh, words such as the parliamentarian ruled, the parliamentarian declared, the parliamentarian decreed, the parliamentarian shot it down. And that's not what they're doing. So they're using definitive, declarative, certain language in order to say there's no way around this. But that is total bullshit. Whatever the Democrats want to get, they can get. They can get. And not only that, as I just described to you, there's a million ways they can get what they want. A million ways. One more example. Did you know in 2001, there were provisions in the Bush tax, the Republican Senate parliamentarian at the time was like, you can't do this through reconciliation. You know what happened? Trent Lott fired the parliamentarian and brought in a new one and then put it, kept it in the Bush tax cuts the provisions that they said, oh, you can't do this through reconciliation. So they heard out the parliamentarian, they went, that, that's interesting, you're fired, and brought in a new one who allowed them to do it. So there's a million ways you can address this if you actually care to get it through, and that's the point, they don't really care. They just want to be able to tell the base, we try, but it's not us, it's the Republicans, and it's the damn parliamentarian who overruled us, even though the parliamentarian doesn't have the, the ability to overrule Oh, they're so weaselly, and they're such liars, man. At least be honest with people, but they're not. And that's exactly like the $15 minimum wage is exactly what happened with that. Oh, if we wanted to, we wanted to, but we couldn't because the thing and the stuff and the parliamentarians, the emperor god king, decided it's a no-go. And so, you know, uh, widow owed me the president of the United States has no power anymore because the parliamentarian. Bullshit! Bullshit! So they're going to lie to you. That's what's going to happen. And remember, this segment is being recorded beforehand, before this happens. The Senate parliamentarian is going to come out and say, can't have immigration reform, can't have whatever, fill in the blank. Climate change stuff. It's going to be a number of things that the parliamentarian says you can't do that through reconciliation. So at the end of the day, we might be left with anywhere from a $1 trillion bill to a $2 trillion bill. And it might have some decent stuff in there, but it's not going to be anywhere near as comprehensive as it needs to be, given the scale of the problems that we're facing. But I need you to understand they are fucking lying to you. They're lying to you. So when, you know, they act like it's all the Republicans' fault or it's all the Senate parliamentarians' fault or whatever, I'm telling you in advance, they can get whatever they want to get, and they have a number of ways to get it. And when they don't get it, you know it's because they simply don't want to. They don't care enough. They just want to be able to tell the base, we tried, but we couldn't get like 80% of the things that we needed. So there you have it. Don't buy the, this helplessness kabuki theater because it's not true. All right, next.
So Jen Psaki, uh, who's now a favorite of, you know, partisan Democratic types, she was doing her job the other day, uh, having this press conference with the media, and, oh, she let something slip here that she thinks is, like, casual and obvious and reasonable, and, well, everybody had a very different reaction to it in the real world because this would set a horrible precedent. Watch. A couple of the steps that we have, um, you know, that could be constructive for the public health uh, of the country are uh, providing uh, for, for Facebook or other platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh, also with the public, with all of you, um, to create robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others uh, if you are for uh, uh, providing misinformation out there. Taking faster act action against harmful posts. That is absolutely terrifying. So she, as a person for the Joe Biden administration, the White House, the executive branch of the United States government, very, very powerful position, she's casually chatting about, hey, here's what we want social media giants to do. We want them to censor and deplatform and ban and... We want there to be more coordination between the giant social media platforms uh, so that when one of them acts to ban somebody or deplatform somebody, it's across all of the platforms. So in other words, if there's any sort of infraction, if anything is said that we think is spreading misinformation, you should get the internet death penalty on all of the platforms. Now, by the way, this is very close to what's actually happened before. Because I don't know how many of you guys remember this, but how long ago was it now? Maybe two years or three years or something. Uh, Alex Jones was banned from one of the platforms. And on the same day, it was like every single big social media platform banned him. I think there was maybe one holdout. I think, he, I think Twitter held out longer. And then eventually they got rid of him too. I don't remember all the specifics, but I do remember it feeling like a highly coordinated effort to say, well, now we're just going to drop the hammer on this guy across the board. With Trump, same thing on the January 6th uh, incident. It was all of the different platforms dropped him, like, the same time. And I think now they're deviating in terms of, is he permanently going to stay off or what's going to happen here? Some of them are permanently keeping him off, but others say, hey, we're going to review this in a year or two or something like that. Again, I don't remember all, all the specifics. So, um, yeah, I... This is concerning, and it's also concerning. I, I have an issue with the social media platforms on their own determining this stuff. I don't know that Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires should have that degree of control over the public discourse, but I definitely have an issue with the federal government getting involved and talking to these companies and telling them who they think is spreading misinformation and whatnot. And if you don't have a problem with it, stop and think about what if it's a, a person who's president, who's from the party I disagree with more, who I hate even more, whose judgment I do not trust at all. 
Because once you set this precedent and you have one administration do it, you could have an administration with a totally different ideology have, having the same power. This is exactly what happened when, you know, civil libertarians were screaming, oh, my God, don't do torture. Don't, you know, abandon due process. Because then, even if you trusted somebody like Obama with those powers, which you shouldn't, but even if you did, then comes in Donald Trump and he has the authority too. So the same thing is going on here. The federal government working with social media companies to censor and deplatform and ban? How is that not a wanton violation of the First Amendment, by the way? I mean, I guess you can make a really you know, big stretch of an argument that, well, since they're not technically jailing people for their speech, it should be allowed. But I'm not buying that argument because this is definitely a restriction of free speech from citizens, and it's over things overtly political. The other thing is, how do you read intentions? It's very difficult to surmise somebody's intentions because, you know, if somebody's spreading misinformation, but they genuinely believe the things that they're saying, that's just what happens in a free society. People are wrong all the time about a multitude of things. So how can you just casually be like, well, I think this person's spreading misinformation and it's intentional. Wouldn't you have to prove that it's intentional? And even if it was intentional, isn't that also just part of the discourse, even though it's something that's condemnable and, and should be looked down on and whatnot? I mean, this is a clear, clear, clear violation, maybe of the legality of the First Amendment, but definitely of the, the principle, the spirit of the First Amendment. The federal government telling the outlets that represent our new digital public square, you should censor and ban and deplatform more, and you should coordinate across all the platforms. By the way, that's the other thing is, it's, they always go right to Internet death penalty. Whenever we have this conversation about, you know, wrong think and thought crimes and things you shouldn't say, it's always like you're permanently banned if you cross a line that we deem is a line. It seems a, a little harsh, doesn't it? The Internet death penalty? I, again, this goes back to the Alex Jones conversation, but the point I made in that conversation is, listen, I always lean more on the side of free speech. But there are still rules. You can't do direct threats of violence. You can't, like, harass somebody. You can't dock somebody. You can't do clear examples of libel or slander or whatever, or impersonation. Like, you can't do any of that stuff. So there are still rules. But my argument was, even in the case of Alex Jones, if you found specific things that clearly violated the, the limited rules, well, then take down those specific videos. So if he docks some Sandy Hook family members or something crazy like that, well, then pull down that particular video. And, you know, you could give some sort of whatever, but you got a two-day suspension or some shit after there's a, a clear, transparent process in place. But that's not what we're talking about. It's always like, you know, if we see something we don't like, we're just going to say, ban it forever. Internet death penalty. Now they're saying across every single platform. This precedent that's being set up is horrible. I don't want corporations micromanaging the public discourse in the same way I don't want the government micromanaging public discourse. But for, if what she's saying is what's happening, now we're getting the worst of all worlds. So you get government officials who have their own access to grind and their own biases. They're working with Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires who control these very powerful companies to determine who should and shouldn't be banned, what should and shouldn't be said. And by the way, who's going to watch The Watchmen is the age-old question. You know, there is no such thing as a ministry of truth. 
because there are plenty of things that exist, by the way, in a, in a permanent gray area. The world isn't black and white. The world's a complex place. Sometimes things are black and white, but oftentimes things exist in a gray area, and we don't know exactly what's true. If you're going to ban people for misinformation, then shouldn't Dr. Fauci not be allowed on any of these platforms because he originally said masks don't work and you shouldn't buy them? He later on admitted, well, that wasn't exactly right. What I was trying to say was we need to save them for the frontline workers. Okay, but you didn't say that. You lied. You lied. So should he have been banned for that? Should CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and all these outlets have been banned because they pushed for the illegal Iraq war based on lies? What about anybody who Russiagated? Should they be banned if they Russiagated? Because now we know that there was absolutely nothing in regards to Russia that Mueller was able to get Trump or his cronies on. And so many stories have been proven factually wrong, like Paul Manafort meeting with Julian Assange, which was totally made up. Should The Guardian be permanently banned? Because that's where that story originally ran. Listen, I could go on and on. Oftentimes, the biggest purveyors of misinformation are the people who pretend like they're the people who correct the record, like they're the fact checkers. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has their biases. There's no such thing as being perfectly objective. You know, if you're an honest actor, you always try, but sometimes you get stuff wrong. It happens. So how can you micromanage the discourse like this? What's going to happen inevitably is the power centers, the status quo, the establishment will determine what the national discourse is and what the narrative is. And guess what? When you give the people with all the money and all the power the ability to control the conversation, anybody who wants to change the status quo is on the top of the list to have the hammer dropped on them. And if you don't believe me, just look at what's already happened. Everybody was clamoring to get rid of these far-right figures on a lot of these social media outlets, and then as soon as they got rid of some of them, soon thereafter, they went after the big Antifa accounts and took them down on Twitter, for example. On Reddit, when they took down the Donald, they went on to take down the Chapo Trap House Reddit. There's plenty of lefties who've been banned under the guise of, we think you're spreading Russian propaganda or misinformation. By the way, are, you not, are we going to get to the point where you're not even allowed to dissent on very basic political questions? Because if you said, back during the lead-up to the Iraq war, I don't buy it. I don't think Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, and I don't think we should invade. I think we'd be the criminals if we did that. If you said that, they would have banned you for misinformation, and history would have proven you were exactly correct. Exactly correct. I mean, you cannot go down this path. But she's, the thing that irks me the most is that she's so casual with it. Like, she thinks nothing of it. She's like, yeah, let's have a robust enforcement strategy. If you're banned from one platform, you should be banned from all the platforms. Excuse you? Their whole, guys, we just learned from Ken Klippenstein the other day. He got a leak which found that the, um, the Navy, I believe it was, listed alongside, like, al-Qaeda and terrorists, socialists. You're going to leave the government in control of speech when they're telling you they view, like, the Black Panthers and socialists on the same plane as al-Qaeda? You're going to let them control the discourse? You're going to give them more power? Well, then, it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. It's already come back to bite you in the ass, and it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop. It's amazing to me that people can accurately view 
the government and giant corporations as like terrible entities that need to be reeled in and need to, you need to permanently check. But sometimes in instances like this, they're like, yeah, totally, give them more power to ban speech and censor people and deplatform. That's not going to end well. It's already not going well. And they want to ramp it up. Even when they said we want faster action against harmful posts, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means if there is a process in place, expedite it. Make it faster. Usually when you rush stuff, it's not the best thing. And so what do you want to put a fast lane in when it comes to giving people the Internet death penalty? And again, define harmful. They play so loose with these terms. There are plenty of things that they would find harmful that I would find shitposting or trolling. That's totally normal. Oh, they, they said also they want Facebook to like measure and publicly track the spread of misinformation. Again, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? So I, this, this is not a good place to be. And, and again, nobody even really talks about the thing that I think is the solution. There are plenty of people who are saying just break up a lot of these big companies. That's fair enough. You know, I respect that opinion. Um, the take that I've always come back to on these issues is you should regulate them as if they're public utilities. And so then you basically expand the sphere of constitutional protections. So everybody has free speech rights. Now, again, that doesn't protect you to dock somebody or do direct threats of violence or things of that nature, but it will put us in a place where anybody who does cross those very clear, minimal but clear lines, there's an open process in order to handle that. And it's not done in the dark by Jack or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever weird committee of ghouls they appointed. I don't trust those guys. I don't trust a panel of experts on questions like this. So there you have it. It does feel like the age of like the totally free and open internet is uh, coming to an end. And the more time goes by, the more they're going to want to regulate it, the more they're going to want to control the discourse and the narrative. And that's incredibly harmful, man. I mean, you guys know this because I talk about it all the time on this show. But guys, there was a time when this channel would kick the ass of CNN on YouTube. Just obliterate them. They'd release a video and get like 700 views per video. You want to know when that was the case? It was the case when the YouTube algorithm was more open and fair, and it was more of a meritocracy. So if your stuff gets eyeballs, if your stuff does well, then the algorithm promotes it more, so more people see it, so more people subscribe, so more people keep watching. And the things that, you know, had more genuine enthusiasm and popularity around them spread far and wide. Then what happened? They decided to stop the spread of misinformation, and so they uh, propped up sources that they viewed as respectable, authoritative sources. The same outlets that get war wrong all the time, that have their own conspiracy theories, that have their own biases, that represent the moneyed interest in the establishment, those sources are the authoritative sources. So now YouTube always props up and spreads around, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. And the other thing is they have this other thing where, oh, they'll promote like, you know, 
edgy outsider stuff, but it's the pre-approved edgy outsider stuff. So, like The Daily Show or John Oliver. If you watch this show all the time and you put your YouTube on autoplay, almost all the time they'll redirect to, like, John Oliver or some outlet like that because they've decided, hey, we can't promote borderline content, so we need to go to authoritative content. And if you like edgy outsider stuff, well, we have pre-approved edgy outsider stuff for you, like John Oliver. And I'm not taking a shot at John Oliver or whatever, but what I am saying is it don't work the way it used to work, where if you put it, put it on autoplay and watch Secular Talk, you come back an hour and 45 minutes later, and it's still on Secular Talk. If you were not somebody who viewed this show, you would get recommended this stuff simply because you watched other stuff on news and politics, and this is news and politics. Now, we don't spread to almost any new people. Very rare that we spread to new people. The you know, autoplay thing almost never goes back to us. That's why I always tell you guys, at this point, like, you need to, if you like this show and you want to be, if you want to see the stuff, you need to subscribe and you need to click the bell so you get the direct notification every time the video drops. And by the way, even then, I'm not sure it works 100% of the time. I really don't know if that works 100% of the time. But then also, if you like and comment, that should help. Theoretically, that should help in the algorithm. But I really think that there's like a governor on the, on the channels that are on the borderline content list. I think that it's like a tiered system. This, I'm, honestly, I'm just guessing at this point, but I think it's like a tiered system. So you have the stuff that's spread far and wide, always gets preferential treatment. Then you have other stuff that sometimes gets preferential treatment. Then you have stuff that doesn't get any. Then you have stuff probably a couple tiers below that that are like big governors on the channel to make sure they don't spread past a certain point. And I'm, I think I'm probably in one of those categories. And so uh, any sort of inter- liking, commenting, subscribing helps. You're more likely to see the stuff if you're subscribed to the show. So obviously if you watch the show all the time and you don't subscribe, please subscribe. So this is, this is what we're dealing with. These are the people they want to control the discourse. The federal government wants to get involved, and they want, you know, these corporate behemoths with management people who don't know their ass from their elbow. They want them to make the decisions. And those are the same people who have decided – Spread the stuff everybody was trying to get away from. Spread the corporate news outlets that people don't watch when they're on TV. Shove those into people's feeds. So now CNN used to get 700 views a video. Now they get like 600,000 or whatever because YouTube pushes them out there nonstop. And they never push our stuff out there at all. So I don't trust these people. I don't trust these people. You know, I I think even though I'm a commentator and, and I give opinions, I still put my record up against fucking Brian Stelter or Wolf Blitzer. Are you fucking kidding me? But they get promoted and we don't. So I'm just, I'm telling you, if you question the system and want to change stuff for the better, they view you like you're just as extreme as some sort of far right white nationalist. Anybody who questions power and authority in the status quo is not favored by the status quo and the powers that be. So just be careful what you wish for. This is not going to end well, and it's already not going well. Speaking of Brian Stelter, here we go. Brian Stelter had a guy named Michael Wolf on his show. And Michael Wolf has written, I think, a couple of Trump books, and he's sort of known for having the salacious stuff in his books that tell you what was going on behind the scenes and 
what were the uh, insane stories that didn't make it to traditional media at the time. So his books are kind of popular, and uh, there's been a number of uh, leaks from the book that came out that show you how wild stuff was uh, during the Trump administration. Well, Brian Stelter had him on, and it did not go well. It got really, really weird. I think the media has done a terrible job on this. I think you yourself, um, you know, while you're a nice guy, you know, you're full of sanctimony. Um, You know, you become part of one of the parts of the problem of the media. You know, you come on here and you you have a... um, um, uh, you know, a monopoly on truth. You know, you know exactly how things are supposed to be done. Um, you know, you are why one of the reasons people can't stand the media. Sorry. <laughs> You're cracking me up. It's your fault. I, it's my, how, so what should I do differently, Michael? Uh, you know, don't talk so much. Listen more. You know, people have genuine problems with it, with it, with the media. The media doesn't get the story right. The media exists in its own bubble. Um, That's true. You know, I agree. You, you, uh, um, you know, you got to stop. I mean, that last segment that 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 I just had to listen to of all of the people saying the same old stuff. Also, you're incredibly repetitive. It's week after week. I mean, you're the flip side of of of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, fake news, and you say virtuous news. You know, there's a problem here. I mean, yeah, we, well, well, figuring out, yeah, figuring out what is real is not so is not so uh, is not so easy. And and you know, most people don't want to talk, turn to Brian Stelter to tell us what's real. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, then why'd you bother coming on CNN a few times this week? <laughs> You know, I'm a I'm a book salesman. <laughs> Michael, I love talking to you. I'm grateful you came on, uh, and I guess let's do it again in four years. Oh, that was gloriously awkward. That ending, like he just he just ripped you a new asshole, and at the end you're like, you know, I really love you. Love talking to you. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, Brian, what was that? What was that? This was, Both of them are hilariously weird human beings. Like the Michael Wolf guy, that was super honest at the end, but it is also sort of pathetic. He's like, I hate CNN. I hate the news. You guys represent the downfall of society. And he's like, well, why did you come on? Well, I got to sell books, bro. What? I sort of would respect it if he was like, they're terrible and fuck them, I'm not going on. But he's like, they're terrible, but yeah, I sort of need to use them to sell books, so I'm going to go sell books. I mean, it was honest, and I give him credit for the honesty, but he almost seems like, as he's talking, you know he doesn't want to be there, and he's like, I'm wasting my time. Also, I don't know for sure, but he strikes me like he might be on something. I don't know if it's pills, I don't know if it's alcohol, I don't know what it is, but Michael Wolf strikes me like, Something's going on there. Might be on some sort of substance, imbibing in one way or another. But let's go through that. A lot of what he said there was totally true. He says about Brian Stelter, you're, quote, full of sanctimony. Oh, (laughs) Oh, that's so accurate about Brian Stelter. 
when he does his, like, smug rants where he tries to diagnose stuff, it's always, like, really not poignant or interesting, but he makes these faces like he thinks it's poignant and interesting. And I've noticed that a number of times when it comes to Brian Stelter. So annoying. Uh, Wolf says, you act like you have a monopoly on truth. Definitely act like that. In fact, biggest bone to pick with Stelter was that he did a number of segments recently where he basically says, like, we need to censor and deplatform uh, all the outlets that I dislike. Now, admittedly, look, a lot of the outlets he pointed to are horrendous, and they do a terrible job, and they do spread misinformation, like One American News Network and Newsmax. But, like, CNN also does a terrible job, and they've been wrong on so many huge things, and they don't really own up to it. And I'm not saying CNN is as bad as Newsmax and One American News Network. All I'm saying is that by any objective standard, they're also a colossal problem, and you don't have a monopoly on truth. And he does act like he has it. When, he, when Wolf says you're one of the reasons people can't stand media, yeah, yeah. That's, I, I haven't met a single hardcore Brian Stelter fan. Have you? In the same way, I've never met a hardcore Wolf Blitzer fan. You know, it's not, I've said this before, guys, but when you look at mainstream media, in many ways, it's what I call an anti-meritocracy. So everybody fails up in mainstream media. Best example is the Iraq war. All the people who were against the Iraq war, Phil Donahue, Jesse Ventura, they were fired. But, but, but the ones who were wrong got promoted. Bill Kristol, David Frum, any of the other ghouls that you could pick, almost everybody who's on air now was around during then, it was wrong on the Iraq war. So everybody failed up. Everybody failed up. So it is an anti-meritocracy. And that is one of the reasons why people can't stand the media, is because the ones who are seemingly talking to you every day are talentless hacks. They really are. They don't say interesting stuff. Um, When they're not being boring, they're being wrong about big questions. They're not charismatic at all. It's they're propped up by a system that force feeds them to everybody. I said it before. I know this is my go-to example, but you could throw Brian Stelter in here as well. If you gave Wolf Blitzer a YouTube channel and let him start where any of the political YouTubers were, no ad money, zero subscribers, how long would it take Wolf to hit a million subscribers? He would literally ever hit it. You can give him 12 lifetimes, he wouldn't hit a million subscribers. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. He wouldn't hit 500,000. He wouldn't hit. I'm not sure Wolf would hit 100,000 subs. He'd be releasing videos all the time, and each video would get 72 views if he's lucky. You know, Brian Stelter, same thing. In an actual open marketplace where the cream's supposed to rise to the top, he would not. They would not, and everybody knows that. So if they weren't force-fed to people, they wouldn't – they don't have the talent to make it on their own. They don't have that ability. You know, it's one thing – it's not even like, hey – They're not correct or intelligent on the issues, but they're charismatic. They're not even charismatic. It's neither thing. They're not intelligent and uncharismatic, and they're not charismatic and dumb. They're just uncharismatic and dumb. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. He says, don't talk, listen more. I'm not sure that would even help Brian Stelter, but yes, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, The media exists in its own bubble. That's totally accurate. Uh, the only thing where I'm going to defend uh, Brian Stelter is the charge of, hey, you're incredibly repetitive. Because, listen, when you're in this field, will you 
learn and you understand very quickly is that, yes, you're going to have to be repetitive because the problems don't change. They're not fixed. So when I'm on this show and I'm doing my run-of-the-mill pro-Medicare-for-all rant or pro-living wage rant or whatever, I have to say it because we don't have a living wage yet. We don't have Medicare-for-all yet. We haven't ended all the wars yet. So when I come out here and I repeat myself on that front, guilty. Guilty is charged, but sort of proud to be guilty is charged because you've got to get this stuff out there. You've got to get these arguments out there. You've got to get these points out there. And yes, you know, if you've listened to the show for three years, you might know a lot of the things that I'm going to say on certain issues. But, you know, I, it's not like I woke up this morning and all of a sudden we had universal health care. So I'm put in a position where I have to repeat myself. And if anything, there, there's, you know, merit to that. There's a good reason for that. Um, and then the final point I'll make is I like the wolf point where he says you're the flip side of Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump, oh, the fake news, everything is fake, everything I don't like is fake. He flips it where it's, no, we're so virtuous. And here's the problem people have with these insular, smug establishment pricks. They're so self-important and they're so self-righteous, they'll melt down for a week over Jim Acosta, right? So they'll, they'll say, Donald Trump was mean to Jim Acosta in a press conference. This is an attack on all media and the First Amendment and a free press. Those same assholes, same people, had nothing to say about Julian Assange. Nothing. Julian Assange, who is locked up and being persecuted because he did the job that a journalist is supposed to do. He showed everybody what's actually happening in our wars and how we killed civilians and killed journalists and the military laughed about it. So he did the job of a real journalist and a real reporter and a hero. And what did he get for it? Persecuted. And the people in the media who should be defending him have nothing to say about him. And in fact, when they do talk about him, if anything, they do the opposite and they bash him. So don't give me this, we're so virtuous. If you're virtuous, Stand up for your profession and stand up for the First Amendment and a free press and free speech. But he doesn't, and they don't. They just want to have the ability to do sanctimonious, silly rants against Trump where they say either obvious things or they overstate things and make silly points. They want to have that ability, but they don't want to defend actual journalists doing important work. So I don't know what to tell you guys. It's, yes, he's right. There's a reason why Trump was actually liked more than these guys. That's the thing. They never understood that. They never looked in the mirror. They never said, geez, what, what are we doing wrong where nobody trusts us and this obvious charlatan con man fraud is more popular than we are? They never had that moment. And by the way, they're still doing it right now. Listen, I'm not one of those people who says you can never talk about Trump. He's the most popular figure in the Republican Party. And as of right now, he's very likely to be the 2024 nominee in the Republican Party. And he's you know, altered the course of that party and, and the kind of candidates. And this is why you get the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gates and people like that. So he's a very important figure and he's still good, politically active. And so you have to cover him to some extent when stories are worth covering, of course. But CNN, I think they cover him more than they cover Biden, who's president right now. So they're addicted to it. And so Wolf is right. Yeah, Donald Trump says fake news all the time. You guys think you're virtuous news, but really all you do is 
sensationalist garbage talking about Trump 24-7. So, I mean, Jesus Christ, I don't understand how they don't see it. It's just they've become such a pampered, lazy profession. And by the way, the establishment groupthink is horrendous. Just like Fox News does the Republican groupthink, establishment media does pro-democratic groupthink too, pro-democratic party groupthink. And I'm not talking about pro-progressive values or pro-socialism or social democracy. No. I'm talking about pro, pro-democratic party, corporatists. So, I, Michael Wolf, I, you know, I can't vouch for the guy's credibility. I've heard some iffy things about him, sketchy things about him. Maybe he himself is very sensationalist. And like you said, he's just a book salesman and he's trying to make a buck or whatever. But I did greatly enjoy this interview where he might be slightly drunk and he's just casually taking a wrecking ball to Brian Stelter's face. Okay. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, oh, warmonger John Bolton gets owned and Ron DeSantis makes an ass of himself. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. All right, we're back, y'all. <clears throat> Let's keep it going. I got a lot of stories I really, really love today. All right, here we go. Neocon John Bolton went on CNN, and uh, he talked about Biden's drawdown in Afghanistan. And, of course, he trotted out all of his old, terrible arguments. But what I love here about this clip is the CNN host is barely trying, and she ends up running circles around him. I don't think the risk of a terrorist attack from Afghanistan is going to come the day after Taliban takes back over. I don't think it's going to take more time, and and that's really what the risk is. I would rather defend innocent American civilians there uh, than in the streets and the skies over America. And number two, uh, there's another aspect of this. It's not just terrorism in Afghanistan. If Taliban takes back over, uh, the hand of the extremist in Pakistan will be strengthened, and the risk of a Pakistani Taliban takeover of that government increases substantially, I think, unfortunately. And such a government would have control of dozens or scores of nuclear weapons, which everybody ought to be worried about. And we lose our ability to watch on the west of Afghanistan what Iran is up to. This was a central strategic position for the United States. We're giving it away. We're getting nothing in return. But he still thinks that there are organizations, that there is intel in place that is going to prevent even what you were saying. With, With all due respect, I don't think it's enough. There's simply no substitute for being on the ground and for not just the military forces that are there, but the other capabilities that we have that we can't sustain without the military being there. So that is a forever war. Well, I think the threat of terrorism is what we're talking about. It's not like American troops have been conducting a B-Day every day for the last 20 years. Uh, We have had foreign deployments uh, since World War II for extended periods of time because it's in our national interest. The question is, isn't do you like the length of the war or not? The question is, what do you do to best protect America? Americans don't want it. Americans have not been given the arguments for the last 15 years. You know, sir, they've been given all of the arguments. No, they haven't. They have not. One of the ironies here is that opponents of our presence in Afghanistan have been able to convince people that we're there purely as an act of charity for the Afghans. And many Americans would say, okay, it's time for them to defend themselves. The fact is, we're there for Americans. And that point was not made by Trump for four years, Biden doesn't agree with it, and it wasn't made by Obama. But they're listening to, for instance, the assessment of someone like General David Petraeus, who was well-respected and was on the ground commanding U.S. forces there, and he doesn't agree with you on that. Well, so so exactly. I guess my point is that the Americans have reason, in an, in an educated way, taking in the opinions of experts, to say, yes, that confirms that there should not be U.S. troops there. That, that may be their opinion. I'm not disputing the survey is correct, but I'm saying I think the arguments have not been made by the top leadership of America uh, long enough to, to be able to convince them. And when you have an absence of debate, uh, it's, uh, it's very easy for people to get a misimpression. This is a, uh, an act of national security malpractice, I think, both by the Trump and by the Biden administration. And I fear greatly that it's innocent people who will pay the price. Do you look back on the mistakes made during the Bush administration and realize that has a lot to do with why Americans think that this is not a good idea? Well, I, I don't think they have necessarily thought through what's right and what's wrong about it. What was right uh, was to strike al-Qaeda uh, and to, to do the damage to it that we did. I think where we veered off in the wrong direction was nation building, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I come back to my basic point. We're not there for them. We're there for us. We're not going to build their nation for them. They're going to build it. But whether we're deployed there as whether we're deployed in Germany, but South Korea, yeah. or, or Japan, depends on a judgment what's in our interest. And to give those positions up, I think, is a big mistake. But what about the parallels between Afghanistan and Vietnam? Well, I think, I think the parallels that people are drawing are incorrect at this point. The issue we're talking about 
uh, in Afghanistan is not continued combat operations. It's been a long time since it was seriously a war that involved American troops. What we're talking about is making sure that terrorists don't take sufficient uh, uh, base in Afghanistan well, you're, or in Pakistan. You, you're trying, to, argue, the United you're trying to say that we, we, the U.S., you're trying to say the U.S. hasn't been at war in the conventional sense with the involvement of U.S. troops. I'm saying the terrorist threat to the United States is not a conventional military threat, and it, it takes a different kind of response. Uh, and that's what we've been trying to do in Afghanistan. Uh, saying, well, the Afghans have to defend themselves uh, is a little bit like saying, well, you know, the Belgians are going to have to defend themselves against the Germans. And if they can't, it's, it's a European problem. It's a long way away. The issue is not the Belgians or the Afghans. The issue is what keeps America safest. And I think having deployments in, in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq uh, to prevent the terrorists from getting sufficient sanctuary so they can plan and implement attacks on the United States or our friends and allies very much in the interest of innocent American civilians. Did the U.S. lose the war in Afghanistan? No, I don't. I think we've walked away from it. I think it's a huge mistake. How, how can you, walking away, That's how what that not, I mean, can you explain what you mean because by Because we, we weren't defeated. John, what would victory even mean? What would it include? What goals would have to be met in order for John Bolton to say, yeah, we won? Notice something. Anybody who's in favor of the Iraq, or the, excuse me, the Afghanistan war or the Iraq war, um, if you ask them to define what victory is, what goals need to be met for us to declare victory and get out, uh, they, none of them have an answer. Not a single one of them has an answer. None of them. So they want us to stay at war with no defined goal or end game or end date. They just want to permanently be there. Notice at one point, they lied to us and they told us all these different reasons. Oh, we got to go to Iraq to uh, get Saddam Hussein because he was working with Osama bin Laden. Well, number one, he wasn't working with Osama bin Laden, as we now know. Number two, homeboy's been dead for a really long time and we're still in Iraq. So maybe that reason you gave us was total bullshit and that wasn't the real reason. In Afghanistan, oh, Al-Qaeda is being protected there and we think Osama's there. So we got to get Osama bin Laden. That's why we got to go. Mission accomplished on that one. Over a decade, he's been dead, and we're still there. According to our own intelligence agencies, as of years ago, there's less than 100 al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan. So al-Qaeda defeated there. Check. Osama bin Laden dead. Check. And we're still there. So now, what, so what, what are the reasons now? What would victory mean? <laughs> You would think that in the process of defending one of these wars, you would be smart enough to come up with even a bullshit reason as to why we have to stay there and what victory would mean and when we can get out. But he doesn't bother. He doesn't bother. Let's go through this. This is great. Um, so at first he says, I would rather defend innocent Americans there than in the streets at home. Wait, hold on. So you're seriously arguing al-Qaeda operatives or ISIS are going to invade Alabama? What do you mean the streets at home? Who from Afghanistan is going to attack on the streets at home? Should St. Louis be concerned? What are you talking about? What does that mean? There's nobody in Afghanistan who has the operational capacity or the will to attack us here in the United States of America. For him to just casually say that, listen, you're not going to get this over on people. People know that there is no direct threat to the homeland of the U.S. from Taliban militants 
in Afghanistan who are using AK-47s from 1983. Who are you kidding? And by the way, the Taliban, they're a guerrilla army. They're, they have territorial goals. They want to have the region of Afghanistan. It has nothing to do with Sacramento. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, then he says, see, he, has mo- he, he contradicts himself a bunch, and he goes back and forth. He has moments of honesty and then moments of the bullshit line. So he says, well, one of the reasons is about keeping Iran in check. So we're in Afghanistan to keep Iran in check? So then you lied to us. John Bolton, Bill Kristol, Paul Wolfowitz, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, you just admitted you lied to us. If that, if that's one of the real reasons we went in. Nobody said, hey, we got to go in to keep Iran in check. Maybe thousands of Americans have to die to keep Iran in check. If you told us that at the beginning, the support for the Afghanistan war would have been like 12%. You didn't tell us that because you know it's not popular, but now you admit it. And by the way, you probably accidentally admitted that. That's the stuff he normally says behind closed doors. But now he's saying it on CNN. Uh, There is a number of moments where the CNN host checkmates uh, Bolton, and he doesn't even realize it. So he describes it, and she's like, well, that's a forever war. You're defining what a forever war is. Checkmate. Then she says, another point she checkmates him, quote, all she said was, Americans don't want it. We're, We're living in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. And the representatives are supposed to uh, represent us. And Afghanistan is deeply unpopular. I told you guys, in like 2013, there was a poll that something like 13% or 19% of Americans still wanted to be in Afghanistan. I think now it was like 22% or some shit. So Americans don't want it. His response to that is, you can't make this up. Americans haven't been given the argument You gave us four different arguments for the reason early on, and then since then, you haven't said anything because you just wanted to keep it going, and now you won't even define victory. Could you imagine saying that? You gave us four reasons, and you moved the goalposts every time. Uh, 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 Osama bin Laden, okay, check. Uh, Al-Qaeda, okay, check. Um, The women and girls or something in Afghanistan? They just keep moving, 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 moving the goalposts every single time. What they don't tell you is, he said this thing about Iran here, but they don't tell you about the military-industrial complex and how war is incredibly profitable for these defense contractors. They don't tell you about the trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. They don't tell you about the opium. They don't tell you about the oil in Iraq. I can go on and on. Um, Then Bolton says, we're there for Americans. How about you fix Flint, Michigan's water for Americans? How about that? The nerve to say we need to be in Kabul and Kandahar for Americans. You need to be in Flint, Michigan, fixing those, that poisoned water and those pipes. That's what you need to do. If you care about Americans, you need to, oh, I don't know, uh, make it so that up to 60,000 people don't die from lack of health care. That's something you could do for Americans. You could fix our infrastructure, which, depending on the year, gets a grade of D plus or C minus. You should do that for Americans. We've got to be in Kandahar for Americans. Could you imagine saying that to a single mother who can't pay the bills or any of the 540,000 people who are homeless now? And that number shot up because of COVID, by the way. Probably added over 100,000 new people who are homeless. There's still evictions going on, even though there's a nominal eviction moratorium. Go tell that person, I've got to be in Kandahar 
I can't, I'm sorry, I can't help you. We can't cut you a check. We can't get you a job. Because we got to be in Cabo and Kandahar. What do you want me to say? Um, then he says, hey, it was right to strike Al-Qaeda. Even if you believe that, mission accomplished, so come home. Even if you believe that. I don't think anybody would have begrudged you in the wake of 9-11 if you had a very narrow and specific and defined goal of get Osama bin Laden and destroy Al-Qaeda, but you got two years to do it. If that were the rules, I think most people, over 90% of Americans would be like, go, go right ahead. But again, guess what? It took longer than two years, but Osama is dead, and now Al-Qaeda is destroyed in Afghanistan. So... There you go. Even if you think that's right to strike Al-Qaeda, well, why are we still there? It doesn't make any sense to still be there. Um, and probably my favorite point was, what about the parallels with Vietnam? Because, yes, what John Bolton doesn't understand is that history is a tough judge, bro. History is a tough judge. So now you might still come up with all these bullshit rationalizations, but... In 30 years, these guys are going to be looked at as monsters of history. George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, John Bolton. I mean, this is what we have here is an illegal and an offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, where hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died. And we broke a region, which then in turn led to the rise of ISIS. Uh, ironically, the opposite of the thing they said they wanted, right? We want to get the jihadists. Well, now there are more jihadists as a result, direct result of your actions. Torture. No habeas corpus, no due process. That's how these guys are going to be remembered. And, you know, just like now we all know Daniel Ellsberg was a hero for the Pentagon Papers. In 30 years, it's, I mean, it's almost already totally unanimous, but in 30 years, it's going to be rock solid. You guys are all war criminals, and you deserve to rot away in a prison cell. And he just, he, he doesn't see it, and he's still arguing to stay there with no end in sight. And finally, he says, it's about making sure terrorists can't attack the United States. Well, now you're on what number reason is this, right? Again, during the course of the war, for the last, like, half of the war, nobody even bothered discussing what's victory, what are the goals, and all that stuff. But for the first half of the war, they just had, like, four or five different reasons, and they kept changing it year to year, right? Like, here's why we're there. No, now here's why they're there. No, now here's why they're there. And then just dropped it at a certain point. So now we're on, you know, which number is this thing that, uh, you know, we're talking about as to why we're there. If you really think, oh, my God, it's about stopping terrorists attacking the United States, cut off all arming and funding of Saudi Arabia right this second. John. But you don't want to do that. In fact, you were part of multiple administrations that helped the Saudis and armed them, gave them money. You say you want to make sure terrorists can't attack the United States of America. But we are top allies with the chief exporter of radical Islam around the world. That particular strain of Islam, Salafi Islam, Wahhabi Islam, that particular ideology, extremist Sunni fundamentalism, that's what Saudi Arabia pushes around the world. Saudi Arabia has armed jihadists both in Syria on the ground and in Yemen on the ground. We are aiding and abetting a genocide in Yemen. We've given them multi-billion dollar weapons deals. Even Donald Trump will pretend like I'm Mr. Tough on radical Islam. He aided and abetted it by giving Saudi Arabia 
money and multi-billion dollar weapons deals. So the nerve of these guys to say it's about making sure terrorists can't attack the United States and then propping up the worst offender that could lead to terrorism. By the way, how many of the hijackers, what is it, 16 of the 19 hijackers or something were Saudi Arabian? We didn't invade Saudi Arabia. 9-11 happened. Weird. Weird. It's almost like they had places and they already had plans to invade certain places and they just sort of pretended like, well, this 9-11 gives us the green light to attack these places because they're responsible or something, even though we now know they're not responsible. You know, it's tough. When you watch a guy like John Bolton, you wonder. You do wonder. How much of his own bullshit is he buying? Is he, just, is he just a complete liar? He's up there lying and he knows he's lying through his teeth. Or is he convinced himself all this stuff is real? Because I don't understand how he can work around that, how he can work around that concrete fact in his head and rationalize it. That, oh, I'm, I want to protect America from terrorists, which is why I'm funding terrorists. The U.S. has helped fund jihadists on the ground in Syria. The U.S. helped fund jihadists back when it was the Mujahideen under Ronald Reagan. We armed Saudi Arabia. Even the concern, oh, the women and girls in Afghanistan. He didn't give that reason here, but there have been a number of people who have given that reason. It's a new reason why they say we have to stay in Afghanistan. Look at women and girls in Saudi Arabia. They have no rights. they got to cover from head to toe. They, you know, they weren't allowed to drive. Their people are beheaded in the public square for adultery and sorcery and witchcraft. Drug smuggling. Don't pretend like you care about human rights when that's one of your best friends. So anyway, really great job from the CNN host there. She spoke for like 10% of the time and still somehow ran circles around him. Amazing. Okay, next. So there were protests in Cuba, and um, there were pretty quickly, there were counter-protests as well. So some came out saying, hey, we need more medical supplies and we need more food. There are shortages. We can't have it. So the first round of protesters were saying that. Uh, Then that was like, I don't know how much this was read into it and how much this was the reality of the situation. But that became, oh, no, people in Cuba want freedom and democracy. So it, it went from this is for food and medical supplies because we're short to, like, let's overthrow the Cuban government. And so then the counter-protesters came out to defend the current government, revolutionary government. Um, and it seems like recently the, the protests have died down a little bit. Now, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with, Cuban government cracking down pretty strongly on, on those protests. And you guys know my, my feelings on this. The U.S. embargo is greatly responsible for a lot of the harm there and the food shortage and the medical supply shortage and stuff. But also, I'm sure the Cuban government uh, is authoritarian on certain fronts. And, you know, that's not acceptable. So with those protests dying down, there were protests in the U.S on the side of the original protesters in Cuba. I think the thing that they've been going with is SOS Cuba. I actually saw, uh, when I was in D.C. for Crystal Kyle and Friends, I was close to the White House, 
and I saw the Cuban protesters who were doing the SOS Cuba thing. So these are people who want to basically overthrow uh, the Cuban government. And Fox News made a big deal about these people. By the way, I was there, and there were maybe 30 people, 40 people. Now, I'm not besmirching them. They have free speech rights, and they can say and do whatever they want. But for them to make it seem like, you know, there's tens of thousands of people in the street, it just didn't happen in D.C., even though that's what Fox News is pretending. Well, in Miami, there's a, a rather large population. And in Florida, there's a rather large population of um, Cuban-Americans. And many of them are against the Cuban government. There's actually a really interesting backstory to this stuff. Um, a lot of the people who were part of the previous regime or were elites in Cuba in the previous regime under Batista, uh, when Fidel Castro took power in Cuba, those rather wealthier families fled to Florida. So you have, you know, former Cuban elites who are now in Florida. And you also have one of the things Fidel Castro did is he sort of trolled the U.S. when the U.S. said any Cuban-American who steps foot, any Cuban who steps foot in America is immediately an American citizen. Uh, Fidel Castro was like, cool, bro. And then he emptied all the prisons and sent them all to Florida. <laughs> sort of an, a historic troll job. But anyway, they... Um, so these people were protesting to overthrow the government in Cuba. And they're all throughout Florida, and they shut down a highway in Miami. Ron DeSantis' reaction to this is very noteworthy, as is um, the fact that he signed a law recently on this front. So take a look at a news clip on this, then I'll come back and explain to you why this is immensely hypocritical. The streets of Havana are quiet today after clashes with Cuban authorities. While in Miami, demonstrators are out again. Protesters here have shut down major highways, one blocked for more than six hours on Tuesday. Traffic also brought to standstills in Tampa and Orlando. Florida's new anti-riot law, established in response to Black Lives Matter protests, targets road blockades like those seen this week, signed into law by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in April. I think this bill uh, that I'll sign into law shows the state of Florida takes public safety very seriously. The law says in part a person may not willfully obstruct the free, convenient, and normal use of a public street, highway, or road. And if they do, they're subject to felony arrest. Yet critics ask if legislators felt the law was needed to prevent road closures like those during Black Lives Matter protests, why was no one arrested under that law when roads were cut off during this week's Cuba protests? Police from two Florida departments tell NBC News there were several arrests, but the anti-riot law was not used. They say that's a matter of officer discretion. It completely contradicts what they said when they passed this law, that it wasn't about Black Lives Matter, that it was a public safety issue. And now we look at what's going on in Miami, where they're shutting down major interstates, but yet there's no enforcement of the law. It's hypocrisy 101. And what does it tell you about why the law was passed to begin with? This law was always targeted to chill the First Amendment rights of black people in the state of Florida.
Damn. So Ron DeSantis signed this law, this anti-riot law, which free speech advocates and First Amendment experts across the country denounced. And they said, this is deeply unconstitutional. But he signed this law and said, it's for public safety and it's for law and order. And you will get hit with a felony if you block a roadway. And even if, if somebody who's driving runs over a protester, there's not responsibility and culpability on the part of the driver. They say the protester shouldn't have really been in the road. So in a roundabout way, it sort of semi-legalizes vehicular manslaughter in these situations. So he was super tough on protests when the protesters were ideologically opposed to him, when it was Black Lives Matter, when it was left-wing protesters. In that context, he's like, crack down on the protest. Now we have Cuban-Americans who are right-leaning, taking to the streets, blocking roadways, and crickets. Crickets. They did not enforce this new law, this law that makes it a felony. I mean, it just it goes to show you. It goes to show you. Partisan hack. There are no principles. He's not truly committed to free speech. You know, he's not truly committed to his law and order approach, public safety concerns, anti-riot position. It all depends on what the protesters believe. And then he changes his standard and changes his view on how the law should be enforced. If you're a right-wing protester, if you're Cuban-American, nah, carte blanche. We're going to let you get away with whatever you want to do. If you're BLM, if you're left-wing, we need law and order. Get out of the streets. There's a riot. We're declaring it a riot. And if somebody runs over you, you had it coming. I, th- I mean, this really pisses me off. It does. Because it also just undermines people's faith and trust in government. Um, and it should. And it should. You see the double standards. The double standards are obvious. You know? And there's a million examples just like this throughout our entire system. I mean, mandatory minimums is a great example. If a white person and a black person commit the same crime, black person is much more likely to get a much harsher sentence. Death penalty. White person, black person commit the same crime. Black person's much. I mean, this is all. This this is all proven. This is all empirical. And here we have another brazen example of basically a criminal injustice system. We have at least a two-tiered, probably a three or four-tiered justice system. He just signed this anti-protest law. And now he's not enforcing it, but if it's BLM, they enforce it. By the way, just to be clear, my actual position is not, hey, crack down on the Cuban protesters and charge them all with felonies. No, I'm a deep believer in First Amendment and free speech and free expression and free protest. And so I think that both the BLM protests left-wing protests and the Cuban protests and right-wing protests, you need to let people peaceably assemble, you know? Um, You just, you have to. Maybe you get into a little bit of a gray area when it comes to blocking roadways, um, but certainly I don't think that was classified as a felony before, and I don't think it should be classified as a felony. Um, I get the idea of having to, like, clear the roadway to let traffic continue. I understand that for sure, but 
I think the original law was way too harsh, and it was an attempt to crack down on the free speech rights of left-wing protesters and BLM. And they're more than happy to trot it out and use it against people who they ideologically disagree with. But when they agree, they get a lot more leeway. And it's just like what happened on January 6th, where since it was a bunch of Trump people at the Capitol, you did see a lot of the officers who were more deferential to the protesters. If it was Black Lives Matter, if it was an anarchist group, if it was Antifa, if it was some left-wing protesters, I don't think the police would have been nearly as deferential. You know, they saw the things of the, them opening gates for, uh, for the protesters. So I just, what, what we need is a, one standard and consistency and the law enforced objectively. You know, and I, you guys know I've said this before. I'm a First Amendment absolutist. I'm, a, I'm definitely on the side of free speech. But what I also am is I believe in law and order when I think that the law should be enforced and it's a good law. So, you know, I actually believe in both things. I believe in the First Amendment, free speech, free protest, the Constitution, but also laws that should actually be laws, like people commit murder, people commit robbery, assault, rape, whatever. I want law and order to be upheld, and I want those people to be, you know, to be taken care of, to have justice brought about. So um, he's just, he's such a hypocrite, and it's so gross, and it's so obvious. And you get actually credit here for NBC News for doing a decent segment on this. I didn't see many other people talk about it, but, yeah, this should be one of those things that hopefully impacts his 2024 chances. If Trump wins, Trump's, if Trump runs, he's probably going to win. Everybody knows that. But DeSantis is a clear and strong second place position. So Trump doesn't run. It's very likely right now to be DeSantis. I hope people take this into account that he's a complete and utter hypocrite. He's a partisan hack. He doesn't have one standard. He doesn't believe justice is blind. He doesn't have principles. He's selective and how he enforces this stuff. And um, that rank hypocrisy should have consequences that go along with it. Let's talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said something the other day that caught my eye. Um, I mean, the old saying is, it's better late than never, and kind of think it applies here. So she says, House progressives are standing up. If Senator Manchin and the rest of the Senate approve the reconciliation bill, then we will approve their bipartisan bill. But if they try to strip immigration reform, child care, climate action, etc., then we're at an impasse. It's a no-go. And she's responding to AOC vows progressives will tank the bipartisan infrastructure bill if a reconciliation bill, including more care economy and climate change measures, isn't passed in tandem. So this is really interesting because so the bipartisan bill is done. Uh, It's the infrastructure bill. Then the partisan bill, the reconciliation bill, 
they also just completed that, and it came out of committee. It's a $3.5 trillion bill. So what AOC is saying is, that's it. That's the bill. Take it or leave it, Joe Manchin. So ain't going to strip out any climate change provisions. Ain't going to make any other changes. If you guys change that, then we're not going to vote for your bipartisan bill. So either we get both of these or we get none of these. That's what she's saying here. This is definitely the kind of hardball that needs to be played. Now, I do want to caution everybody up front, though, because the way that this stuff works is if they didn't say this, they don't have a seat at the table. So in other words, if they just went along like they've done with all the other bills so far, they don't have a voice. They don't have a say. They don't get to exert influence and use leverage in the debate. But now with her saying this, the progressives that she's, you know, voting as a block with, now they have a seat at the table. Now they're in the conversation. Now they get to use their leverage. Now they get to throw their weight around a little bit. So what she's saying isn't even necessarily exactly what's going to happen. But the fact that she said this now makes it so that she has to be at the table. She has to be in the room with Biden. She has to be in communication with them and negotiating with them. So the fact that she did this means they will be able to now negotiate a bill that's not as bad as it would have been otherwise. So in other words, the bill could have been $1 trillion, let's say, with everything climate stripped out of it and a number of things stripped out of it. And now with her saying this, and if the progressives are going to vote as a block on this front, and they are, it seems like they've coordinated that, well, now maybe that bill is not going to be $1 trillion. Maybe it's going to be 2 or $2.5 trillion. And maybe you get, you know, the universal pre-K and, and um, child care and other provisions that are really important. Maybe you get that, and instead of having no climate change stuff, you get some climate change stuff that also pertains to physical infrastructure, let's say. So, but I, again, I want to be clear, and I want everybody to understand, this is how you play politics. If this is AOC in the House progressives acting like Joe Manchin. The reason why Joe Manchin often gets his way is because he says this, and he does this. Now, if they didn't say this, if the House progressives didn't say this, they wouldn't have a seat at the table, and the bill would be all what Manchin wants. But now that they're at the table, they're going to have to split the difference between what Manchin wants and what the House progressives want. And you're going to get a better bill as a result of them throwing around their way like this. Um, this, is the right, this is the right thing to do. Now, by the way, I really, really, really want them to listen to this and understand this is a good faith criticism, and I'd really like it if they adopted this. But if they have the nerve to do this and they have the spine to do this, what I really want them to do is why not call a press conference, have your, your, you know, your block of fellow progressives who are going to vote together, and you have so much power if you have like 12 of them and they vote together. You have no idea how much power they have. Call a press conference and say, we are blocking any and all pieces of legislation from getting to Joe Biden's desk. Unless and until he breaks out that executive order pen and eliminates student loan debt, legalizes marijuana, frees every nonviolent drug offender that he has the power to free, 
and, uh, you know, make a list of things that he can do through executive order. Here's another example. He has the ability through executive order to give everybody who uh, had COVID and needed medical treatment to just wipe away all their bills, have that be paid for by the federal government. Do that. So make a list of like 10 things and say, we're going to block everything unless and until Joe Biden uses that executive order pen to do this. Now, if they do that, you and I both know what would happen. Democratic leadership melts down and denounces them. Uh, Joe Biden melts down and denounces them. The media melts down and denounces them. Uh, and they all say, you're just helping the Republicans now. You're in league with the Republicans. This is, the, this is what Republicans want. You're doing it. And that's so much pressure and that's so hard to withstand. But if you stand strong and you have a spine and you say, we are representing the American people. Look at all the polls. They agree with us on this. So we are the ones who are being small D democratic and representing their will. We're the ones who are doing our job. All of you are authoritarian and you're overriding the will of the people. So it's not on me. It's on you. If you want things to get to your desk, then do these things that the American people want or nothing's going to get to your desk. And it's not my fault. It's not my problem. It's your problem. You're the one to blame. Now, if you do that, what's going to happen? Joe Biden is not going to say, I'll give you all 10 of those things. It's just not going to happen. But what he will do is, after you do it for long enough and they know you're serious and they know you don't care about the onslaught of threats against you and, and smear campaigns against you, he'll call you into the office and you'll talk and you'll negotiate. And maybe the list of 10 things gets whittled down to five. And maybe those five things he tweaks ever so slightly. You know, oh, I won't legalize marijuana, but fine, I'll make it a Schedule Three drug instead of a Schedule One drug. Whatever. Something, something, for the love of God, something. I'm not going to eliminate all student loan debt, but I'll do 30 grand of it. And then you say, no, 50. And he, ah, 35, 40. Okay, fine, 40. Something, something. You need a seat at the table. And if you do that, if you play that kind of hardball, even though you'll feel like the entire country is against you and the media is against you and whatever, at the, in the end you'll be a hero because he'll do something through executive order. So if you're going to do this, and now you're beginning to understand the tactics of the Tea Party that you're supposed to use, well then, you can do that. And we can get a lot more change in a small time frame than you think. So listen, I, we have to give them credit where credit is due. Credit on this. Use this same mindset now and apply it in a number of different ways. I like the executive order thing because that's how you get the most change in the shortest amount of time. So that's what I like, but you don't ha just have to use my idea. Use, you know, come up with your own idea. This was obviously their own idea. You know, I, I've never said that this is the right way to hand handle this one, but now that I see that they're doing it, I like it. I support it. I think it's great. You know, I have issues with that bipartisan bill, because um, there's some privatization of infrastructure that goes into that, which I'm not okay with. But if you tell me we get that, and then, but we also get universal pre-K and childcare and two years free community college and all the things that are in the partisan bill, I'm like, this is what politics is. And this is a good deal. It's a really good deal, even though there are parts I don't like. So credit to AOC, credit to the House progressives. Let's see, now, but now the devil's in the details, okay? So 
now that they're in the room and they have a seat at the table and they're going to be negotiating directly on the bill, let's see how good they do. Because you're going to have to be willing to shoot the hostage in some situations. If Joe Manchin is insistent, no, only a $1 trillion bill, and we're stripping it of, like, all the good things, well, then you have to say, go fuck yourself, and we're not going to vote for the bipartisan one. So you have to be willing to shoot the hostage. You have to have the courage of your convictions. But also, I hope they can negotiate in a way where they get a decent deal. I would think a decent deal is not – they're not going to get the $3.5 trillion bill, but if they're at the table and they can get 2 to $2.5 trillion, and they can get a lot of these things like you know, universal pre-K, child care, uh, two years community college, some climate change provisions, and whatever, raise taxes on the wealthy. If you can get that, if you can get that. That's awesome, and I'll give you credit. And we know that bill would have been way worse if they didn't have a seat at the table. But now, they, now the devil's in the details, and they have to negotiate a decent package. And obviously I can't tell you if I like it or not until the details of that are out. Uh, but hopefully relatively soon the details of that will be out, and we'll see. It's going to go from $3.5 trillion to listen, if it's anything in like the one point something trillions, anything from one trillion to one point nine trillion, I don't think they did that great of a job negotiating. If it stays to two or two point five, they maybe did do a decent job negotiating, and it depends on the specific provisions. But this is the mindset, this is the approach. You're not in Washington D.C. to make friends. You're not in Washington D.C. to climb the ladder. You're not in Washington D.C. to go along to get along. You're there to represent the people. These are the kind of tactics that will make it so that the people get more, and now you know. Fuck the media when they come after you, if they come after you. Fuck Democratic leadership. Fuck the Republicans and the Republican leadership. Do your job, and this is what your job is. Credit to you. Okay, next. So there have been historic flooding that's going on now in uh, Belgium and Germany. Let me show you a news clip on it. The death toll from the devastating floods in Western Europe has risen to 150, with more than 1,000 people missing. As Karen Greenbank explains, a village in Germany was swallowed up in a landslide. Live on TV, this Belgian mayor was describing the devastation when it unfolded around him. The wall of a house collapsing, sending furniture toppling into the floodwaters. Two people then spotted scaling the roof to escape, dropping an animal carrier to safety. All this carnage, the result of two months of rainfall in two days. Thousands of police, soldiers and emergency workers have now been deployed across Germany and Belgium, dealing with everything from homes on fire to landslides. In this German village, the ground suddenly opened up and swallowed several homes. <laughs> this Belgian woman saying she's been told her house could collapse. Just, just utter devastation. It was, you know, it was, it was heartbreaking. Among the heartbreak, though, there were scenes of hope. These men smashing through a wall to reach an elderly woman who'd been trapped on the ground floor of her heavily flooded building. Then, German residents snatching an emergency worker to safety. Risking their own lives to save his. But hundreds of people are still unaccounted for, in part due to phone networks being down. And in Germany, electricity has been cut to more than 100,000 homes. 
overnight they were upstairs and it was dark because there was no um, um, no light, no, no uh, power. Authorities warn the dangers not over yet as the threat spreads to the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Switzerland. In London, Karianne Greenbank, Nine News. Whoa. Whoa. Um, so this is just out of this world. They never thought something like this would happen there. Nobody ever thought it would happen there. And uh, now it is. And this is just part of a trend. You've all witnessed it. I've certainly witnessed it. All over the world, you know, records are being broken and they're being shattered. The thing that happened in the U.S. recently is, uh, what was it, Washington State? It hit like around 115 degrees when the previous high was like 106. So just almost by 10 degrees broke the record. And it was a heat, colossal heat wave that lasted a really long time. And something almost like half or something like that of the houses there don't even have AC. People definitely, some people died as a result of this heat wave. We're now seeing the wildfire season. Like last year, we had a historic wildfire season, and it was terrible. Now we're on pace for it to be even worse this year. Australia, obviously, last year dealt with that as well. Um, Now we're seeing flooding. Definitely the climate of different places all across the world is sort of drastically changing. Um, Every time these climate scientists look at what's going on, they say, oh, boy, this is worse than what we predicted the worst-case scenario would be. So there is no – when we talk about climate change, this isn't like something in – that's coming down the line. It's like, no, we're already seeing the impact of it. Already seeing the impact of it. Apparently, in the Southwest, they're running out of water. I forget the exact number, but it's about, it's about 35% capacity. That's what the, where the water is. It's at 35% capacity where it should be. So, you know, people are encouraged and told to please, you, you know, take quick showers and don't use excess water. And you just got to sort of cross your fingers and hope that this resolves itself when it comes to the rainfall in that region. It's a very barren region, dry region. Um, but, I mean, this is, we should have had a Green New Deal decades ago. The story that really hit me hard the other week is learning about what the wet bulb temperature is. So the wet bulb temperature is this idea that here's what happens when it gets too hot for humans to live in a place. So they say it's got to be like, I think it's got to be 88 degrees Fahrenheit with, I think, over 95% humidity. So if you hit 88 degrees Fahrenheit or more, and you're at 95% humidity or more, you can, otherwise healthy people can die relatively quickly. Because what happens is sweating, which is your body's mechanism to cool itself off, um, it doesn't there's something that happens with the way you sweat when the humidity is that high that you're not really able to cool yourself off. And so you sort of slowly cook. And there are it's more and more places, places uh, in parts of Asia, places in uh, the Middle East, even though that's dry heat, but there's places where it will just simply be too hot for humans to live. So there's going to be mass migration out of certain areas and other places are going to be overcrowded and there's going to be wars over water 
And um, everything's changing, and it's changing rapidly. We're not prepared for this, man. We're, we're not prepared for this. And what we should do is we should look at the changing dynamic as an opportunity to lead the world forward. If we did a Green New Deal, and if we invested in renewable technology, um, we can, it could be a giant uh, boost to the economy because you could create millions of jobs around this stuff and get the inevitable patents for the future. And instead of doing that, we're dragging our feet and we still have a government that's beholden to the oil interests. Still have about half of our elected officials don't even believe that climate is changing, never mind the fact that half of the ones at least who believe it's changing either don't want to do much to fix it or don't want to do nearly enough to fix it. So we're in a terrible position right now. And this sort of stuff is going to keep happening, man. You're going to keep having, in some areas, you're going to have excessive heat, um, wildfires. In other areas, you're going to have too much moisture in the air and more natural disasters like hurricanes ramping up, flooding. I mean, all extreme natural disasters, all of them tick up. And we've seen that. And it's going to keep happening. So we got to act and we got to act now or we're going to keep seeing stories like this. And even if we act now, we're probably still going to see a lot of stories like this. So for the love of God, get on it. Okay, next. Mitch McConnell went on Fox News and uh, he's – showing everybody here the standard line that Republicans are going with in the Biden era. This is how they're going to attack Biden. This is how they're going to attack the Democrats. Take a look, and then we'll laugh and break it down. Representative Jayapal is correct that all five progressive causes are checked off in this bill. What, what do the lives of Americans look like if that's the truth and this gets through? Well, it's an introduction of socialism into America, done on a one-party basis in a Congress that's virtually tied. You know, Senate's 50-50, the House has a couple of seat Democratic majority. They didn't get a mandate to do this stuff. They're not going to have any Republicans help them do this stuff. This is a left-wing dream of Bernie Sanders, fulfilled, uh, they hope, uh, on a very narrow vote with no, you know, no room to spare, jam this down the throats of the American people. What keeps you up at night over what's happening under a Biden administration? You've known this president for many, many, many years in the Senate. Sure, I like the president personally. He was never a moderate, and this administration is in no way moderate. Bernie Sanders may have lost the nomination, but he won the war over what mm-hmm. the program of the Democrats is going to be. This is socialism for America. It needs to be stopped. No Republicans will support it. Hopefully there will be one or two brave Democrats who will stop this from happening. That is amazing in so many ways. So, I mean, this is all they have, guys. All they have is to close their eyes, cover their ears, and scream, Socialism! 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 Big government. Big government bad. Socialism bad. This is not landing like perhaps it did Uh, in generations prior. It's just not landing, not landing at all. Um, 
if you look at the polling on this stuff, especially with younger folks, socialism is in the same ballpark as capitalism. It might even be a little more popular among young people than capitalism is. Sure, with like, uh, you know, senior citizens, they still have that same gut effect and, and knee-jerk reaction when they hear socialism, like it's definitely negative, but it's not the boogeyman that it once was, especially because capitalism very clearly has sort of destroyed people. Look at what happened with COVID. We simply didn't have the system in place and the mechanism in place to protect people and to take care of them and to do the right thing when COVID hit. People sort of learned, oh, the system's a joke. Billionaires are getting trillions of dollars more wealthy during the pandemic, and regular people are getting hosed and obliterated and becoming homeless, and there's loopholes in the eviction moratoriums and things of that nature. So it's not going to work. I love when he says, well, the Democrats don't have a mandate. Biden won the presidency, Democrats control the Senate, and Democrats control the House. And you're saying Democrats don't have a mandate? If that's not a mandate, what is? If, if Mitch McConnell was in the same position the Democrats were in, so if you had a Republican president, a Republican Senate, and a Republican House, you know what he would say? Mandate. Clear mandate. We won at every step. By the way, we also had a special election where everybody put it on the line. And the Democrats said, hey, you vote for us, you're going to get a $2,000 stimulus check. The Republicans were like, maybe Trump is for it, but the rest of us, I'm not, but maybe, okay, but I'm not going to talk about it, even though I'm an, I, now I have to pretend to be for it, but I'm not going to talk about it that much. What happened? Democrats won. They literally said, hey, if the Democrats win, Bernie Sanders is going to be the budget chairman, so you have to vote Republican. And then everybody went out and vote, voted Democrat. So it is a mandate. That's exactly what it is. And if Republicans had these numbers, it would, they would say it's a mandate. It's, that's always the way it works. When we win, it's a mandate. When they win, it's a fluke, and they shouldn't do anything. Um, then he calls the agenda a left-wing dream. I mean, that's so hilarious. Guys, how is this a left-wing dream when every other developed country not only has these things, but they go further than us? It's not a left-wing dream. It's called basic developed industrial society, basic civilization stuff. But Mitch McConnell's too busy representing corporations 24-7. He thinks that's what his job is, to help corporate America. That's what he thinks his job is. Guys, he bra- remember that video we showed you where he bragged? He's like, you're going to get more money, but I didn't vote for it. Nobody in my party voted for it. We're against giving you money. What? Well, thank you. Thank you for just handing that over to the Democrats. We really appreciate it. I shouldn't really use we because I'm more... I'm like a left independent because I vote more for the Green Party than I, I have for Democrats. But I'm technically a registered Democrat in New York because I need to vote in Democratic primaries. But it's amazing that he's just handing that argument over to the opposition. Uh, and, the, and they don't even know how to pounce on it. That's the craziest part, too, is that he's saying, I'm a terrible politician and I will make terrible arguments. And the Democrats are like, we're not going to pounce on that. What? He says Joe Biden was never a moderate. Never a moderate? He voted for the Iraq War, the Patriot Act, NAFTA, the crime bill, the bankruptcy bill. Half of his views are right-leaning. Never a moderate. You know what? McConnell's right, but not in the way that he thinks he is. You're right. Never, he's not a moderate. He's right-leaning. He's conservative. He's a conservative Democrat in many ways. 
So, yeah, he's not a moderate, but it's not because he's a left-wing radical. It's because he's right-wing. Hilarious. And then uh, he makes the case that Bernie won the war on policies here. I wish, buddy, if Bernie won the war on policies, we would be fighting for Medicare for all and a, and a living wage. And he dropped the living wage. Uh, Biden dropped the living wage under you know, minimal pushback. He didn't really fight for it in his own caucus. And uh, he's not, not only is he not doing Medicare for all, he's not even doing the public option. So I wish Bernie won the war on the policies. He didn't. But, but um, the things that they are attempting to do now in this reconciliation bill are all positive things. And McConnell just wants to call it socialism and dismiss it. Well, what are we talking about? Universal pre-K, child care, two years free community college. This is all stuff the American people love. They love it. They love it. So I wish, I wish that was the case that Bernie won on the policies. I wish it was all of his policies. But if the Democrats were intelligent, what they would do is push back on McConnell here and be like, correct. Correct. You're accusing us of pushing for policies that Americans support overwhelmingly. That's right. And thank you for admitting that you're against it. And thank you for having no arguments other than, I'm scared socialism. (laughs) This is all he's got. And if the Democrats can't win on this front, they're totally hopeless. By the way, the thing that the more intelligent Republicans are doing is they're talking endlessly about the culture war to try to distract from the economic stuff. That's what they're doing. McConnell's too dumb to play that game, so he just goes, he goes right down the economic path and makes himself look like an ass. But the more intelligent Republicans are like, we know we can't talk about the economic stuff because even though Biden's center right on that, that's way better than far right on it. So, you know, we can't come out and say we're against you going to college and we're against universal pre-K and, you know, we're against whatever, another round of stimulus checks, or the child tax credit is the big one. That's another thing that's really going to help regular people, you know, the child tax credit. They can't just say we're against that because they would lose that argument all day, every day. So the other uh, Republicans are like, Mr. Potato Head, something, Um, Dr. Seuss, something else. Talk about uh, trans bathrooms. Ah, Focus on this because they know they can't win in the economic realm. McConnell has been in Washington since roughly 1612, and he can't help himself. So he's going right down the path, making an ass of himself, and has the nerve to argue that Bernie is controlling Biden. I wish Bernie was controlling Biden. That would be awesome. But no, Uh, Biden is moderate or center-right, and it just so happens that moderate politics or center-right politics looks like Noam Chomsky when you're Mitch McConnell and you're off the spectrum on the right. I want to give you guys an update on what's happening at the Frito-Lay factory uh, in the middle of the country. This is wild. So we talked about this on Crystal Kyle and Friends, did another segment on it on Secular Talk. Well, now, you know, many different outlets are picking up on this. And this is a great example of worker solidarity. People across the country are saying, I stand with the workers of the Frito-Lay factory. The facts on the ground are even worse than we knew before. We knew they were bad before. We knew they were bad. We didn't know they were this bad. Take a look. 
company says, we're shocked they went on strike. How are you shocked? Did you think that we would go to 90 hours before we would hit the streets? Forced overtime causes divorces. It caused people to kill themselves that used to work here. Okay, there have been several employees that have killed themselves, okay, that have worked here over the years, okay? This is a continual thing. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. We have to do something with the suicide shifts because to work 12 hours and be off eight and work 12 hours, you got time, travel time, and everything. I said that's a safety risk. Imagine being an employee in here that has not had a day off for five months. That is the reality of what you're seeing. That is the reality of why you're really seeing the picket over here. Four or five years ago, we had a guy, and, man, he, he was working all the time, and, and he uh, stopped off at a rest stop on I-70, and uh, he fell asleep, and, you know, he didn't wake up. The company wants to call it a squeeze shift. It's, it, it's not squeezing about it. It's suicide. doctor appointments, dentist appointments that could not make them because of the forced overtime, walking out the plant last second, hey, you're forced over. Things need to change. This is not a way to treat people. Perfect Union, they did a great job, uh, you know, being on the ground there, talking to the workers, getting the facts together. This is wild. 12-hour days, seven days a week, five months straight. There's got to be stronger laws around this stuff. There has to be. There has to be. I mean, it should be, by law, two days off per week, you know, at least I prefer we go to like a four-day work week, but at least give people the option. You're telling me 12-hour days, seven days a week, five months straight. If you were to take time off, they would like basically effectively penalize you. That should be illegal. They're describing how 
a number of people killed themselves. They were overworked and exhausted and probably had other issues, and that's what happened. Somebody was worked to death. You have to earn points to get time off, and 31 days get you one point. Again, 12-hour days, seven days a week, five months straight. By the way, as we discussed in the previous segment on this, they had a raise of like 40 cents or something over a nine-year period. So, I mean, call it what it is. This is basically a modern-day sweatshop. That's what this is. And I hate to say it, but it's sort of true. It reminds me of um, something I learned from Noam Chomsky about the, pre- the position of the Republican Party in the 1800s is that they wanted to abolish what they call wage slavery, because they say working for a wage, renting your labor on the market, having a job, they say wage labor is not that different from chattel slavery. So they think wage slavery is just like chattel slavery, where you're not really free. If you rent your mind, your body, your labor on the marketplace, and then when you're at work, you basically have no rights, no control, and the boss can tell you to do almost anything. How free are you really? And this is like a great slap in the face and a stark reminder of what it's really like, you know, because, I mean, I'm sure they do it the way they do it is like veiled threats, you know, little bits here and there. Oh, sure. I mean, you could take a day off if you want, but there might be consequences for it. You're going to lag behind and, you know, you wouldn't want to lose the job, would you? And so people feel like they had to work 12 hour days, seven days a week, five months straight. Now, thankfully, they have a union, and so the union is now fighting back. And, you know, you have to talk to the union about what their terms are. But when I watch this, I think the laws need to be changed. We need to have much stronger labor laws around this country. Because oftentimes what will happen is the union might get some victories now, but then the management in Frito-Lay, which is really part of PepsiCo, they might decide, well, maybe we'll just send the factory to Mexico now because you guys are becoming too much trouble. So what we need is really strong labor laws and rules around this stuff. You need to incentivize against outsourcing and make it so that they would be penalized to the point where it's not financially worth it for them if they outsource the jobs. You need to have you know, time off guaranteed by law as the default, as the norm. You need to have stricter rules around overtime. I mean, this stuff seems very basic, but... Obviously, there's, you know, things that are lacking in the law, or, or at least the enforcement of the law, and that needs to be addressed. That needs to be addressed, because this is unacceptable. Nobody should be living like this. And if they feel like this is the only option I have, and I have to work seven days, uh, seven days a week, 12-hour days, five months straight, that's psychotic, and nobody should be put in that position. Nobody should be put in that position. You know, hire more people. Give these guys regular hours and hire more people to fill the gap. You know, I mean, how does this stuff even need to be said? By the way, they don't even have climate control in the factory. Where So in the summers, sometimes people faint from exhaustion and are wheeled out, uh, and they can't take the heat. And in the winter, people are all layered up, and, you know, there's issues there as well. So there should be other laws about what the temperature needs to be within a reasonable range, you know, anywhere, I don't know. It has to be anywhere from... 65 to 75 in there or something. There should be a window that it has to be in. Um, there's a million ways this needs to be addressed. So solidarity with the workers. Uh, I hope they get some real concessions and the policies over there change. 
And listen, I'm not. I'm usually not one to uh, to do economic boycott stuff, but I mean, this does. I'm not going to buy Frito Lay products. There's other chips that are out there. Now, I, granted, I don't know the condition in the factories for the other chips, but could it be worse than this? I don't know. But this does make me want to sort of avoid it until they address this the right way. You know, they haven't had a raise in nearly a decade or a 40 cent raise in a decade. They got to fix that. They got to get them more time off. They got to fix the climate in there. Protect the workers. They have to protect the workers. So solidarity with this union. What we need is the laws I laid out, but also we need near universal unionization too. Because if we had that, workers would be taken care of much, much better. Places that have um, near universal union rates, they have thriving working classes. And they get a lot more time off. They self-report being much happier. They're financially stable. And this is just, we have the opposite here. And it's unacceptable. And this is something that if mainstream media, corporate media was doing their job, this would be a huge story. But it's not, you know, on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. They're not talking about it at all. Credit to some of the print outlets that talked about it, but they're not talking about it at all. It's a fucking shame. Um, so credit to More Perfect Union for getting us this information. This is a huge story, and I hope it spreads even more far and wide. Okay, next. So Joe Biden is uh, stonewalling marijuana legalization, or at the very least, decriminalization. So let me read you uh, this new thing that happened involving the Senate. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer proposed legislation Wednesday to legalize marijuana at the federal level, a move aimed at easing restrictive drug policies that have disproportionately impacted communities of color and the poor. The Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act would remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act and introduce regulations to tax cannabis products. The proposal would expunge federal records of nonviolent cannabis offenders and allow people serving time in federal prison for nonviolent marijuana crimes to petition a court for resentencing. By the way, under this legislation, it also gives basically the first crack at um, profiting off of marijuana and, and creating the industry, the marijuana industry. It gives first crack to the communities that were impacted the most by the war on drugs. So listen, it's a good piece of legislation. Chuck Schumer's bringing it up. Now, the reality is it would have to go through regular order, which means it needs 60 votes. I don't think you're going to get 60 votes, even if you hold every single Democrat, which I have doubts on that, because who knows what Manchin or maybe the odd conservative Democrat would say on this. Some might be against it, cinema, whoever, somebody might be against it. Uh, but then you also, well, at most you get two or three Republican senators. No way you're going to get the number that you need. So not going to get like nine. So... You could argue this is a little bit of like, it's a virtue signaling bill. I'm going to show that I'm on the right side of this, and the, the, a lot of us Democrats are on the right side of this, but we're, we have our arms twisted, and uh, it's not really going to go anywhere. But that gets me to the one and only President Biden. So he, so get this, from Kevin Robillard, Robillard, however you say it, uh, the press secretary on Schumer's marijuana legalization bill, quote, I've spoken in the past about the president's views on marijuana, and there's no change. No change. So in other words, he was always a drug warrior, and he's still a drug warrior. Even at this late date, even when the polls are overwhelming, in the country it's like 60% want to legalize marijuana. And then the Democratic Party, I haven't seen a specific poll for the Democratic Party, but I imagine it's 
80% or more, probably between 80 and 90%. So what are you doing here? The part that's the most frustrating is, dude, look at your son. Look at Hunter. Hunter has had all sorts of problems with drugs and addiction. And you know what? Joe Biden never wanted to lock him in a cage and ruin his life over that. He wanted to give him a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and endless chances. So for him to be in favor of criminalizing it for everybody else, but for his son, oh, he's special, that is unforgivable in my opinion. And by the way, listen, the real takeaway should be people who have substance abuse issues, they should get treatment. It should be treated like a medical issue. And then everybody who can handle substances, which by the way, according to Dr. Carl Hart, the expert on this, 80% of people are not addicted to substances when they have substances, whatever they may be. For them, they should be able to do what they want. It's not a crime. Nobody's getting hurt. It's the same thing as drinking a whiskey on the weekend or something. But he doesn't view it like that. And he's the author of the crime bill, guys. How many innocent men and women of color were locked up as a direct result of what Joe Biden was in favor of? The guy who said we should ban raves or something to that effect. He's a drug warrior. He was one, and he still is one. So it's Joe Biden who's really getting in the way of taking the next step on weed. When we know the writing's on the wall, eventually it's going to be legalized. You have to do it. And the most frustrating part is you don't even need this piece of legislation uh, through the House and the Senate. I mean, it would be good to have it, but the president has the ability to take marijuana off the controlled substances list altogether. So immediately decriminalizing it. You know, if you, if you want to legalize it and put the, you know, guardrails in place and put the rules in order to make it so that, like, like we said, the communities that were most impacted by the war on drugs get first crack at it. I get that and I'm in favor of that. But Joe Biden could end this national nightmare today, and he doesn't want to do it, even to the point of it sounds like even if there was some miracle and this bill got through the Senate and it would immediately get through the House, they've already passed a different marijuana legalization bill through the House. If this got through the Senate, Biden might veto it. He might veto it, which is just bonkers, man. That's just out of this world at this late date. It's really unforgivable. So anyway, even though it's a virtue signaling bill on the part of the Senate Democrats, I'm happy that they're on the side of legalizing marijuana, or most of them are the overwhelming majority of the elected Democrats in the Senate are are on that side now. The House Democrats, we know are in favor of it because they already passed the marijuana legalization bill. So really, it's the Republicans getting in the way and Joe Biden. It's just so pathetic. It's so pathetic because it also, on top of just being the right thing to do, when it comes to criminal justice, it's also the right thing to do when it comes to the economy and personal freedom. And he's just wrong across the board. He seems to understand the issue more when it comes to his own son, when it comes to others, throw the fucking book at him. That's the worst kind of hypocrisy. All right, next. Let's talk about Gates. So Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, have been doing this tour, or they want to do this tour, the America First tour. It's like this joint fundraising thing, and it's also like a pro-Trump circle jerk. Uh, so 
they were trying to get these particular venues and they were canceled on at least twice, at least twice, maybe three times. But let me show you uh, what one of the venues said. This is from Anaheim. Planned America First Rally canceled. A planned America First Rally at a private venue in our city is canceled. The city of Anaheim shared public safety concerns with the operator, and those concerns are shared by the operator. Okay, that's a weird sentence. As a city, we respect free speech, but also have a duty to call out speech that does not reflect our city and its values. Okay, so I've actually read contradicting things on the venue. It looks like the venues that have canceled on them are private venues, but it's weird because if it's the Anaheim City thing, then that's not private. It, I guess maybe if it's an indoor thing, it's private. I, I honestly, I don't know. Some things I've read said that it's a private venue. Others say it's public or at least semi-public. So here's from a legal perspective, this is the way it is. If it's a private venue, even though I don't necessarily agree with this, if it's a private venue, they technically have the legal right to cancel on whoever they want to cancel on and to allow to speak whoever they want to allow to speak. That's the way it works with a private venue. Now, again, I'm a deep believer in free speech. I think, if anything, free speech protection should be expanded even to the workplace. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily agree with canceling on people if you don't agree with them, but they technically have the legal right. Now, if it's public outlet and the public officials are just shutting down speech they don't agree with, I think that's a different legal situation. Um, the government shouldn't be in the business of picking and choosing what opinions are and aren't acceptable. Now, you could say, hey, the government's not going to lock them up over their speech, so that would be a violation of their free speech. This is not. But I definitely say at least the principle of free speech is being violated here. If it's a public venue and the public venue had agreed and then they canceled because they don't agree with Marjorie Taylor Greene or with uh, Matt Gates. So the legal situation, I think, does change slightly based on whether it's a public venue or a private venue. Uh, but having said that, I mean, listen, even though I despise what these people stand for with every fiber of my being, Marjorie Taylor Greene is like the next Sarah Palin or Michelle Bachman, just total airhead, but she's even more like angry and arrogant than, the, than they were. So it's not even like the folksy charm with the stupidity. It's like the angry, I'm going to tell you how it is, even though I'm moron energy. So despiser, a total conspiracy theorist, at least Q-adjacent probably maybe full QAnon. Matt Gates is doing everything he can to try to distract from the charges that are, you know, out there now about him with the relationships with the very young women, maybe some underage or relationships with them, and they're traveling between states, so it's like sex trafficking technically or whatever. He's trying so hard to distract. He's also going all in on his, his pro-Britney Spears stuff, which, good, I'm pro-Britney Spears, but Matt Gates, why are you talking about this? Because he's trying to distract from all that stuff. So I despise these people. But having said all that, whether it's a private venue or a public venue, if you agree to it, follow through on it. And they did agree to it, so follow through on it. And here's the main thing that I keep coming back to. There's a lot of people out there who think AOC and Bernie Sanders are, you know, the, the, the next incarnation of Mao. And they're evil and they're terrible and they're authoritarian. And listen, those people are dead wrong about everything they're believing and saying, for sure. Uh, but there are people who would cancel on them simply because they are them and they don't agree with their ideology. And if, so, if a private venue or a public venue canceled on Bernie or AOC or Noam Chomsky or whatever, I would say that's Weasley and you shouldn't really do that because 
this is America. They have a right to speak their mind. And if people want to see it, who are you to, you know, get in between and say, we don't want them to see it or we don't want them to use our stage or whatever to get the message out? I just don't agree with that. I mean, in the, ninth, in the early, I think it was like 1939 or something, in Madison Square Garden, there was like a fucking Nazi rally. Then there, there's the famous Supreme Court Skokie case where the Supreme Court said the KKK has the right to march through a predominantly Jewish and minority neighborhood as long as they're being peaceful. Now, the message is hateful, genocidal, and terrible, but as long as they're marching peacefully and they're not doing direct threats of violence, and they weren't, they're allowed to do it. That was viewed as, you know, a cornerstone, fundamental free speech case in the U.S., and what everybody understood at the time, which now people don't understand nearly as much, is that that is what freedom is. That's true freedom. Freedom is when you can get on the soapbox and advocate for you know, complete communism or anarchism or fascism or whatever, and you're allowed to say it. This is the whole idea of freedom. You don't need free speech protection so that you can say, I love mommy and apple pie is delicious and rainbows are pretty. You don't need those protections because everybody's going to agree with you on that. You need it specifically for the people who are advocating the ideas that are out there. So I despise Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, but whether it's a private venue or a public venue, you let him speak. And if it was Bernie, I, I hope they would say the same thing. Now, by the way, I don't really think they would because these guys are hypocrites. They're not actually principled in their belief in free speech, but I am. I am. And so, you know, the same way I said Milo had the right to speak at Berkeley or whatever when there was a riot over that, or Ann Coulter has the right to speak, by the same token, Abby Martin was canceled from an event uh, because she's critical of Israel and every, she's for Palestinian rights, and they view that as, you know, unacceptable at the place she was going to speak, and they canceled on her. It may have been a public university. Uh, Rania Kalik was canceled, maybe over her beliefs on Syria. I mean... You don't want to open this door to banning people simply based on what their politics are. Everybody has a right to speak in this country. Now, again, private venue technically has the right to ban them, but Twitter technically has the right to ban Antifa accounts from Twitter, and they did, and they shouldn't have. And so they shouldn't have banned um, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, I don't know why this isn't an easy position to grasp. You can hate the person, you can hate the ideology, you can think they're total idiots and wrong about everything, and they pretty much are. Um, but don't do stuff like this, and definitely don't celebrate it, because it's going to come for you. It probably already has come for you, and you didn't even realize, people on your team, you know, people with your ideology. In order to have a YouTube that allows me to run my mouth, you need a YouTube that allows Ben Shapiro to run his mouth. It's, it's, it's a package deal. There's no way around it, and it's the same for this. So hopefully everybody understands that, as much as I despise these people, they shouldn't have canceled. Um, and by the way, the real, I didn't even t tell you the biggest part of the story, which influences my opinion on this, by the way. So I, like I said, it's contradictory stuff out there, whether it's public or private venue. But what we know for sure is public officials put pressure on the venue, whoever is in control of the venue, which then leads me to believe it's private, it's a private venue. But public officials put pressure on them. And the whole thing about safety concerns is not true. It's not accurate. It was made up. It's a rationalization. So for public officials to pressure a venue to not allow them to speak because we don't like them, that's unacceptable because that's the government at the state level or the local level, you know, 
forcing out somebody for ideological and political reasons. That's not okay. That's not okay. All right, next. So some interesting news came out here about Caitlyn Jenner. I want to share this with everybody. This is in regards to her governor race. Uh, Jenner's reality campaign, it's fair to wonder whether Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California or filming another reality show. Well, it turns out she's doing a little bit of both. Jenner is showing up at, a camp, at campaign events and rallies with a film crew like famous candidates often do. But she's also brought the crew to an interview with Sean Hannity and to an appearance at CPAC. Looking ahead to life after the trail, Jenner has been paying them to collect footage of her time running for office. And after the campaign, she could do whatever she wants with it, sell it to Netflix for a documentary perhaps, or to E! for another Kardashian reality series. Nothing like that is in the works yet. We're just throwing out a few scenarios. We're documenting history, a senior campaign advisor explained. So they go on to say, listen, there's a very, 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 very low chance she wins this race. Um, so she may have gone into it saying, I know I'm going to lose, but I want to stay relevant and record something and try to be a part of history. And they reference in this article in Politico, Mitt Romney and Hillary Clinton did the same thing when they ran, and they had much better chances of winning, by the way. But when they ran, they had film crews that documented everything about their campaign. And um, so that's why people are saying now, well, hold on. Is Caitlyn Jenner running because she wants to be governor and she thinks she has a chance, or is she running thinking she has a 0% chance, but she wants to document this? Because she could very easily go out there and, make, you know, first trans woman running for governor and look at the hatred and the bigotry and all these things she felt. And so she's trying to maybe be viewed as, like, heroic. And I remember, as soon as I read this article, I, I had that flashback to when she was at CPAC, and there were articles that said she was, like, chastised and berated, and there were transphobic comments that were hurled at her as she was leaving CPAC. And now that I read this about how she's got the camera crew following her everywhere, by the way, that she's paying for out of her pocket, because there's uh, campaign finance issues if the campaign pays for it, so she's paying for it out of her own pocket. But I thought, well, now how do I know if that's real? How do I, I, I know that that wasn't you know, a planned thing so that she can then make these arguments in a documentary about her, says, look, see, I'm, you know, look at how discriminated against I am because I'm a trans woman and also I'm conservative and you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to cross these ideological lines and these identity lines and I did it because I'm brave and wonderful and look at what happened. Because the, the, the things that were hurled at her were very like, if you had to write down the most brazen kind of harassment, it would be on the list. It was like they were saying, repent, give your life to Jesus, and they were saying, repeatedly misgendering her and deadnaming her and calling her Bruce, 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 Bruce. And um, so now, I, I, I mean, i got to be honest with you guys. This is my job, right? I read this and I think, well, maybe that wasn't real then. Maybe that was planned. And it was planned to make this documentary more dramatic and to give her, you know, this claim of first trans woman running for governor of California wouldn't only be the first woman governor, but also be the first trans woman governor if I won, and it would be so historic. And uh, look how hard it is when the left hates me for my conservative views and the right hates me because I'm transgender and aren't I just such an iconoclastic hero and aren't I amazing. Maybe that is the case, man. Maybe that is what she's doing. Um, it's hard to know what's going on inside somebody's head, but listen, I will say this, though. Either way, e even if she ran thinking there's no way I'm going to win and she's documenting the whole thing, 
there were reports that early on Trump felt the same way about himself, that he was just running for president as almost like a publicity stunt to, uh, you know, increase his fame even more and uh, become more relevant. And it just so happened he sort of tripped over his dick and fell in the White House because who was his opponents? It was Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and people who have zero charisma. And Trump, despite all of his flaws, was a more interesting and entertaining character than them. So you never fucking know what's going to happen, right? But it's hard to know what's going on in somebody's head. But there were intelligent analysts and people around the Trump campaign who said he never thought he was going to fucking win. And now with Caitlyn Jenner, it might be a similar thing where she got into this not thinking she's going to win. And now you never know. It might happen. I mean, listen, they elected Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And Arnold Schwarzenegger is a Republican governor, and he was governor of California. Celebrity, ran for governor of California, won unexpectedly. Hmm. I don't know what's going to happen with Caitlyn Jenner, and it's very likely she doesn't win. But I'm just saying stranger things have happened. So, but I definitely think at least in part, at least in part, the motivation here was more content for people. And I don't like this blurring of the, of the lines between reality and, you know, entertainment. It just, there's something that's very unsettling about it. There's something that's very inauthentic about it. And that really drives me crazy. And this could be a great example of it right here. Okay. All right, guys. We are done, baby. I love all y'all. Everybody have a great rest of the day. I'm out. Peace. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.